Well, good morning, Hickory Grove. How wonderful to be here with you. Uh, like the Apostle Paul wrote to the Philippians, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. And I think of you often because I think of your preacher, my dear friend, Clint Presley. I have actually preached for Clint Presley in more than one church, in more than one state, in more than one decade, in more than one suit. Uh, to know uh, Clinton Connie Presley is just a great, great, great gift. And uh, I, I, I need to, in, in, uh, in this service, just acknowledge an indebtedness. Uh, first of all, to him uh, for his uh, conviction and courage, serving not only as a trustee at Southern Seminary, but as chairman of the board in very, very important times. And I just want you to know, I know that if I can count on very few people on the entire planet, I can count on Clinton Connie Presley, and for that, I'm just very, very thankful. Thankful, thankful to you that as you, yes, please do. Amen. Yeah. And thankful to you as a church for your commitment uh, to the training of gospel preachers and the taking of the gospel to the ends of the earth because of your support for the Southern Baptist Convention, for the cooperative program, our, uh, our mission work at home and abroad. And I have to tell you, there are a whole lot of bad things going on in the world. You may have noticed, but God is doing some wonderful things in his church to confound the wisdom of the wise. And this is my third service this morning at Hickory Grove. And you are the third congregation to be subjected to my preaching. And I just see God's glory all over this church and uh, your witness right here in the city of Charlotte and far beyond. I just want to tell you, I love your joy for Christ. I love the way you sing. I love the way you worship. I know how you're being fed. And I just love being here with you. And we're going to turn to the sixth chapter of the Gospel of John. John chapter 6. Now, you may have heard about the little boy who's sitting next to his granddaddy in church. The preacher took off his watch and set it up on the pulpit. The little boy turned to his granddaddy and said, what does that mean? The granddaddy said, from what I can tell, absolutely nothing. <laughs> I have been on a strict timer for two services. Your pastor set me free for this service. <laughs> you just had lunch plans. <laughs> no, I mentioned that simply because of John chapter 6. This passage is bigger than can be preached in one message. Every text is in one sense. That's the reason why God has had his preachers throughout all the centuries, 20 centuries, preaching the same book, preaching the same text over and over again. But even on a morning like this, when we're turning to John chapter 6, I just have to tell you, this text is beyond us. So I'm going to have to explain some of it before we read some of it. And a part of us just kind of reminding ourselves what has taken place. So as John chapter 6 begins, it begins with the miracle we know as the feeding of the 5,000. And, uh, you know, as a little boy, I thought that meant that Christ miraculously multiplied the food so that 5,000 people ate. That's not what happened. It was 5,000 men plus unnumbered women and children. 
So that means that there were more than 5,000. There may have been more than 10,000 because this is just the number of men that showed up, 5,000. And you can imagine with all the women and with you add the children, it's an unbelievable number. It's an even bigger miracle than I understood. And you know the story. You had this little boy who had his loaves and fishes, and it was just for him. It was just, it was just a snack because we're not talking about you know, 12-pound bass here. We're not talking about Atlantic salmon. We're talking about basically minnows, very small fish. And, and you say, how could he carry around his fish? Like, who wants to sit next to a kid with a bag of fish? <laughs> well, they dried them. They would, they would take these fish. They were so small that they would take them, put them out in the sun, just on a board, and they would dry, and, and you'd eat them. Now, I realize you're going to do better than that for lunch. But you know, if you're a little boy who's hungry, a couple of those little fish and some loaves, they'll do pretty well. But not for 5,000 men and unnumbered women and children. And, and something more was going on there. And it tells you about the priority and the power of the preaching of Jesus. So people didn't go expecting to stay all day hearing Jesus preach. But we're told the crowd just grew and grew and grew and grew and they stayed. Because the preaching of Jesus was such that they couldn't leave. And that meant that nobody cooked. And, and back then, it was a day's work just to get one meal. It's not going to happen. These people are going to be hungry. The disciples are concerned. Jesus takes the opportunity because he sovereignly had established the opportunity. And he took the little boys, fish and loaves, and he multiplied them. And not only were all fed, thousands and thousands of people fed, but they were fed to the fill, and there were 12 basketfuls left over. And, and you know, this is just a picture of the supernatural power of God. And by the way, John begins his gospel, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made through Him. When Jesus was preaching, and He took that, that little lunch, it was the Creator of the universe who multiplied. It was Jesus who made the boy. It was Jesus who made the bag. It was Jesus who made the loaves and the fishes. It was Jesus who made the cosmos. Who could take loaves and fishes and multiply them? Well, the one who made the loaves and fishes in the first place. Well, you look at this and you recognize this is the disclosure of Jesus as the Son of God. This is the disclosure of the deity of Christ. And, and this is this incredible miracle. And by the word miracle, we mean this can't be explained by any kind of natural explanation. Fish multiply, but not like this. And loaves of bread don't even multiply. And this is how it happened. By the way, liberal biblical scholars say that this is moral, not metaphysical. In other words, they say, this really didn't happen. But what happened is people brought their food and when they saw the moral example of the little boy sharing his food, well, they all felt badly that they've been hiding theirs. That is the biggest nonsense. I tell you what, theological liberals believe more nonsense before breakfast than most of us can imagine in a lifetime. But I mean, what, what that, that is not an explanation of what happened here. And, and, and furthermore, that's just further evidence of what actually took place when the miracle took place. There were people who didn't like it. And they didn't like what it revealed. 
It's very interesting that the, the day we're going to be looking at is not the day of the feeding of the 5,000, it's going to be the next day. The next day after this miracle. The next day, Jesus is teaching on the other side of the sea, the other side of the Sea of Galilee, so really a big lake. And uh, these people went to hear him, and they basically were there to ask the question, what have you done for me lately? They demanded a sign. They said, well, you know, the miracle, that one yesterday was really cool, Jesus. What are you going to do today? Jesus told them, truly, truly, he said, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. It's so sweet. Jesus says, hey, I know why you're here, and it's not because you have a theological question. It's because you have an appetite. He says, do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. And then the key verse in the entire passage comes as you look at John chapter 6, and you look at verse 35, and Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. They said, give us this bread that you say means that once you receive it, you're never to hunger again. And Jesus says, no, you're missing the point. I am the bread of life. Now, you know enough biblical background to know that something totally shocking has taken place here. In the Gospel of John, Jesus repeatedly discloses himself with the formula, I am. I am the good shepherd. I am the door. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the bread of life. Here's what's key. In the Old Testament, when Moses is hearing God speak to him from the burning bush, and God commissions Moses to go and lead the children of Israel out of captivity to Pharaoh in Egypt. You'll recall Moses says to the one true and living God, who shall I say you are and who shall send me? What is, your, what is your name? And out of the bush that burned and was not consumed, Moses heard the divine name, I am. I am. So when Jesus says, I am, he is saying, I am God. I am the only son of the Father. I am the second person of the Trinity. I am the only begotten son of the Father. John tells us again in John chapter 1, for the word became flesh and dwelled among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. I am. Now, here's the thing. Those who did not want to acknowledge Jesus for who he was hated him for saying who he was. It's something to watch in the New Testament. When they don't want him to be the Son of God, they hate it when he makes clear he is the Son of God. So Jesus tells them he's the bread of life. And, and by the way, it just is the most powerful picture of our salvation. And Jesus is going to make that clear. Jesus is the bread of life. And, and, you know, this helps me. It helps me a lot, so many different levels. For one thing, what does it mean as a sinner to come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Now, the theological way we explain that is justification by faith alone. That is to say, we are justified, and Paul makes this clear in Romans, we are justified, we're declared right, our sins are forgiven on the basis not of what we have done, but solely on the basis of what God has done for us in Christ, Christ's atoning work, his substitutionary sacrifice on the cross. 
I remember as a boy, one of the first hymns I learned was, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left its crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. But, you know, as a boy, I kept hearing about coming to faith in Christ. I heard about conversion. Now, I knew about the public profession of faith in Christ. I'd seen it take place many times. Well, here Jesus gives us the most beautiful, simple, profound picture of what that's all about. Feeding. I am a, a grandfather. Mary and I have three grandchildren. They are two little boys, six and four, and a little girl who's one. And they make us very, very, very happy. We're happy just thinking about them. We're happy hearing from them. We're ecstatic being with them. And uh, frankly, we talk about them all the time just with each other. They were just recently with us for about a week with their parents, who we allowed to come as well. <laughs> and, uh, you know, at the end of it, Mary and I were just all of a sudden alone. We took them all to the airport. And, and we finally spoke out loud what we were all thinking, that both of us were thinking. This is like the greatest week. God blessed us so much. We're exhausted. We're sore. We're sick. Because they sneezed at us. They slobbered on us. They got in our face to rub noses with us. What they are, we are. Their germs are germs. But you know, we just kept thinking about it. There's something else about watching them eat. Because especially the one-year-old, she's a little girl. She eats just like the little boys. Evidently, it's not a girl thing, it's not a boy thing, it's a baby thing. You put food in front of her, get out of the way. And it ain't pretty. There isn't the slightest bit of table etiquette in that little girl's life. She is like a wolf pup eating. You put something down, she grabs it. She now knows where her mouth is. She's got that down. It goes right in the mouth, closes pleasure. That's conversion. You come to the Holy Spirit-led conviction that you're a sinner and you know the penalty of sin is death. And then you're told about a Savior named Jesus. And you're told that He died in your place and God raised Him from the dead in order to accomplish our salvation. The salvation comes to all who believe on Him and repent of their sins and cling to Him. Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. Do you know what salvation means? It means knowing you're a sinner, knowing he's the Savior, taking the bread as fast as you can, eating it. And then sitting there in the sweet satisfaction. And you know what the satisfaction is with bread. What is the infinitely greater satisfaction to know the bread of life? Well, some of those who heard Jesus talk here are not happy at all with what he said. They grumbled, and grumbling here. He says, do not grumble among yourselves. So they were grumbling. We were told they did. Verse 41 says, so the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. They don't like it. They don't want to hear it. 
And it's not that they misunderstand it, it's that they reject what Jesus is saying. I had the opportunity back in the 1980s uh, more than once to go hear Question Time, the British Prime Minister in London in the House of Commons, and Margaret Thatcher was the Prime Minister. And I had and have enormous, enormous respect for the Britain's Iron Lady, its first female Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher. You may remember she was strong. She was absolutely the greatest public speaker I'd ever heard on her feet. And, and in American politics, they talk at each other. In British politics, you got the, in the House of Commons, you get the two parties, they're in benches stacked up, and they face each other and yell at each other. In public debate, we don't have anything like that in, in American politics. And uh, I heard grumbling for the first time. I always wondered what it sounded like. Well, when Margaret Thatcher would make a point, the, the labor... The, the liberal side, they would just grumble. You hear the bum, 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 They were all mad at what she said. They didn't have much of an answer to give, which is why she kept wiping them up in public debate. But the fact is, you heard this, and it's just, it's like they don't have any argument. It's just they don't like this. They don't like this. They don't like this a bit. And that's what's happening with the preaching of Jesus. The, the, those who rejected his message, they're just grumbling, and Jesus says, stop it. Or at least know that I know you're doing it. Something else we need to notice, and this is very, very important. When Jesus knew that people grumbled, he said, hey, boys, listen, Kelly, I'm going to give you something to grumble about. My dad was that way. You never whined in front of my dad. I was his firstborn son. He was never going to have it. My dad always said, if you're going to whine, I will give you something to whine about. That's what Jesus does in his preaching. He says, you don't like this? Okay, come here. That's what he does in Luke chapter 15. I want you to watch it. We're not going to go there now, but just when you're thinking, go to Luke chapter 15. He told three parables to people who grumbled that he allowed sinners to come unto him. You remember that? In Luke, Luke chapter 15. Just read it later. But he, he, told them, he told them the first parable, the parable of a lost sheep. And it made him mad. So Jesus said, okay, we're making some progress. Come here, I got another story for you. It's going to make you madder. And he told the story of a lost coin. And they were mad. They're mad. They're grumbling. They're mad. And Jesus said, okay, I'm going to make you even madder. And he told them the story of a lost son. And then, just in case they missed it, at the end of that parable, he shifts. And it's not about one lost boy. It's about two lost boys. Because all of a sudden, we hear, and the elder brother was in the field. Okay, so he's saying, you know what? He's grumbling. That's what that looks like. Let's see where that goes. Well, right here, the point is that those who are listening to Jesus and they hear him say, I'm the bread of life, there is a pattern of those who had already rejected Jesus, rejecting him even more loudly, even more clearly, But I want us to shift to the latter part of the passage. Because it's one thing for these Jewish leaders to grumble. This, the, the account gets bizarre in verse 60. Listen to this. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Okay. It's one thing 
for the avowed enemies of Jesus to grumble about his preaching. But here, his disciples don't like it. His disciples are grumbling. Now, there's a different kind of grumbling, and here's what we need to notice. Here's, it's a different kind of grumbling. The Jews were grumbling, basically saying, he says he's the son of God, we say he's not. He says I'm the bread of life, he's not. He says if you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you will have everlasting life. If you will not eat my flesh and drink my blood, there is no life in you. And they said, that's just not true. The disciples didn't say it's not true. They just said, does he have to say it that way? That's a hard saying. Who can say it? You know, maybe what we need to do is get a communications advisor. You know, all politicians have them. This is the person who says, uh, and boy, isn't this happening a lot lately. I shouldn't have said that. But yes, it's happening a lot lately. The President of the United States says something, and about five minutes later, there have to be a lot of staffers come out and say, ah, it's not what he meant. Uh, nope, that's not exactly it. Nope, 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 nope. What, what he meant to say was this. Well, that's what communications people do. That's why presidents have communication teams. We'll go in and clean up after he speaks. And the, the disciples are going, boy, this is a hard saying. Do you have to say it that way? You know, maybe there's a way to put that a little easier. Like, I am sort of like the bread of life. One way to think about me is sort of like the bread of life. And you're sort of hungry and I'm sort of like bread. No. Have you ever noticed there are Christian churches that try to say that? Just this past week, I saw a statement from a congregation in my city of Louisville in which they said, Jesus offers value to your life. Oh. Jesus offers value to your life. If you're going to hell, guess what value it is? If you've just been saved from hell, you're going to call that value? Dollar General's about promising value. Jesus gives eternal life. Didn't mean that as an advertisement. But the point is, Jesus doesn't add value, He's the Savior. He's the light of the world. He's the bread of life. You understand what happens when the church tries to say, you know, in a secularizing age, it's getting really tough out there. I mean, people just don't, they don't have a biblical vocabulary anymore. How many of you heard that? Where people say, if you want to win people, if you want to get them to come to your church, you're going to have to stop talking about stuff like atonement and, and doctrine and revelation and Bible, and you're going to have to talk about meaning and purpose and, you know, just try to avoid any of that theological language. It turns people off. That, by the way, I, I love the fact that so much of the singing this morning is just a repetition of the gospel. It's just telling the gospel story. We're going to say it again. We're going to say it again. And, 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 and there's some just really offensive lines in what you're saying. And you look pretty stupid out there smiling while you're saying unless you believe them, which you do, in which case you can't wait to sing them. You know, that last song, it wasn't just the music. M music. Music can do that to you. You can find yourself, you know, I worry. I think you put Christians in the Soviet Union and they start playing the communist national and Christians are going to start mumbling the words because the music is so powerful. But, you know, that's why you need, keep needing to look to the words. That's the true test. And it's the words that made you sing loudly. It's, it's, it's the words that declare the gospel that made you happy. And you wanted to sing it.
make it clear. What we're told here in verse 60 is that some of his disciples grumbled and Jesus heard it. Now, what's Jesus going to do when he knows his, his disciples? Did you have to say it that hard? Did you, did you have to put it that way? Can't we rephrase this just to take away some of the sting? You know, Jesus, you don't have to say everything every time. I don't know if you've ever heard, if you've ever heard this, but a little homiletical advice, Jesus didn't go to seminary. You know, a little homiletical advice would be, you know, you got next Sunday. You got the Sunday after that. You got the Sunday after that. You can't preach Genesis to Revelation in every single sermon. You're going to have to start. You're going to have to stop. People go home and eat fried chicken. Seriously, the bread of life, and Jesus just kept on pressing it. You know, again, if you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you will live. If you do not eat my flesh and drink my blood, there's no life in you at all. Do you have to do all that? Jesus knows they're grumbling. So what does Jesus do? Look at this. Jesus asked them, do you take offense at this? Verse 61, Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? And, and he goes on and he says, well, what, what if I were to ascend to the Father? What are you going to do then? The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe, for you already knew about Judas. That's what John's telling us there in verse 64. And then look at verse 65, and he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. And then the passage just gets so intense, it's hard to read. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Now, that, when you, that's the problem here with the word disciple, because you're thinking of the 12, as in the 12 disciples. It's not that they didn't walk with him anymore, but in all four of the Gospels, the Gospel writers help us to understand that there were a lot of people who claimed to be Jesus' disciples. And when Jesus' preaching was popular, they wanted to hang around with him. But now Jesus' preaching is not popular, and they start to fall away. John makes this very clear uh, just in, as Jesus is headed to Jerusalem. And we know that he's going to be crucified there, and on the third day he's going to be resurrected. But as Jesus heads for, for Jerusalem, the crowds of curiosity get bigger, but the circle of disciples gets smaller. Some of the, those who claimed to be Jesus' disciples didn't like him saying this. They walked with him no more. So then notice how intense it gets. So Jesus said to the 12 in verse 67, do you want to go away as well? Do you also want to go away? Folks, I just want you to imagine this morning that Jesus is asking that question of this church right now, of you right now. Do you also want to go away? And look, right here in this city, there are plenty of churches that more and less recently just went away. They've departed from the gospel. There is no gospel in them. They deny the scripture. They preach against the scripture. They got the rainbow flag out front and the dust of death inside. So you say, yes, did... Did Jesus ask this hypothetically? No, this isn't just a hypothetical question. Throughout the history of the Christian church, throughout, throughout the last two millennia, the last 20 centuries, there have been so many churches, so many denominations that have simply gone away. But the Lord always maintains a remnant, and he will not be without a witness. 
But how is this when he turns to the 12 and says, do you also want to go away? And then you have to wonder, how in the world do they answer this question? Do you want to go away as well? Verse 68 tells us, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. You know, in the history of the Christian church, there are these great, great, great moments of Christian witness. Think of Peter and, and John before the Sanhedrin. Think of Peter on the day of Pentecost. Just uh, think of these great moments when those who knew Christ declared salvation in his name, declared Jesus Christ crucified, raised from the dead. But you know, one of the most powerful confessions of faith found anywhere in Scripture is right here where Peter just kind of, we can imagine quietly just said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You ever thought about that? Let me give you some really good bad news. The world thinks this is bad news. You know it's good news. you got nowhere to go. To the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, here's the good news. There's no exit. There's no alternative. you got nowhere else to go. The Bible's the Word of God. Guess what? you got nowhere else to go. Jesus Christ is the Savior, the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by Him. Salvation is in His name. Guess what? you got nowhere else to go. Jesus Christ is Lord, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. you got nowhere else to go. Isn't it healthy every once in a while just on Sunday morning to look at each other and say, uh, you know what? It's just a good thing we remind each other about weekly when we gather together as Christ's people. we got nowhere else to go. God's glory is actually in that. But Peter didn't end there. He didn't just say, Lord, to whom will we go? He also went on to say, you have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and come to know you are the Holy One of God, the Messiah, the Son of God. Isn't this text precious? It takes our breath away, if we're honest. It, uh, it has this incredible turn where the grumbling is not the Jews, the grumbling are those who claim to be his disciples. And look, that's a, that's a problem we better detect in the church. The moment you have people inside the church say, I'm not sure that's true. The moment you have someone in the church saying, preacher, won't you hold back a little bit? The moment you got somebody in the church who says, there's got to be a better way to express that doctrine. Let's not tell people they're lost and dead in their sins and trespasses. Let's say they got needs. They need to find authenticity. Now, what they need to find is the forgiveness of sins and the atonement accomplished by the Lord Jesus Christ. We've got nowhere to go. And we've come to know and to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior, the Son of the living God. This passage has that massive swerve where the grumbling's not outside, it's inside. But there's also that massive swerve where the disciples find their nerve. What do you think they were like right after this? Well, you can, you can find it. Did Jesus asking, will you also go away? Are you also going to go away? Did that weaken them or did it strengthen them? It strengthened them. And you see that as Jesus 
and as they are headed for Jerusalem. That's what we pray for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's just pray that. Let's make that our prayer, that we will be really clear that we have nowhere to go and we're not looking for anywhere else to go. And we want Jesus and we want all of him and we want the scripture and we want all of it and we want to preach the gospel and we want to preach all of it and come together every Lord's Day to hear more from the Word of God and exult in Jesus is look each other face to face and say, hey, you know what? We're here this morning because we got nowhere else to go. And we're not looking for anywhere else to go. And we're looking for more people Jesus will draw to himself to have nowhere else to go with us until we go to glory. Let's pray. Father, we're just so thankful for all you've given us in your word. Father, thank you for this passage. Thank you for astounding us and surprising us with this passage. Thank you for confounding us and making us look so closely. Father, if your disciples heard you ask the question, do you also want to go away? How much more so do we know every church hears that same question? Father, to your glory, may you pull your church unto yourself and show your glory in our witness to the world until you come. Even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen.